Hello, hello, hello. Welcome along to Benchcast. I'm Neville O'Donoghue, and this is a podcast for bench warmers. Listen to me now, listen to me. Which phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. We're going to do it. Tyson Fury. It's Torres to give Chelsea a place in the Champions League final. The headline has been written. You're a county? Absolutely not. That's a load of rubbish, by Sean, to be quite honest. Uh, He's a disgrace to have a football club. What a belt he's given it. I, 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 I love I love I love me county, you know. We love Jamalans. On today's show, I have former Ireland international, Munster rugby, and Bristol player Dave Corpery. Sit back, relax, and give it a listen. Enjoy. Dave Corpery, Dave, how are you? I'm good, Nev. I'm good. I'm good. Still keeping the uh, the good side out. That's good. You're looking forward to. Uh, Ireland versus England legends uh, is a Friday night, is it? Yeah, Friday night, yeah. I'm not looking forward to it, no. There's no point in saying that I am. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah no, look, it's a, that that particular game has been going for nearly 10 years now. Um, and it's 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 a fantastic opportunity for to raise funds for various charities around the, between the UK and Ireland. Um, the Injured Players is, Trust is, is, is one of the major ones. And I mean... On occasions, you'll get 10,000 who turn up at it. Um, it's also a great way to kind of rekindle uh, with your old rugby mates. Um, I'm, look, I'm, I'm pushing on now. I'm, uh, I'll be 50 this year. Uh, I'm delighted Morris Field has decided to play as well. He's, uh, he's considerably older than me. But, um, but then there's also quite young players. Billy Holland, Duncan Williams are all going to throw on the boots this time. And that's the next generation of... Uh, of so-called legends coming through, but it's a it's a fantastic occasion. It's held in the uh, in the stoop in Harlequin's grounds, and its kickoff is at seven fifteen. So if there's anybody heading over there on Friday night and they have a spare few moments and uh, a spare tenor in their pocket, come along. It's a, it's normally a great occasion, and there's some very entertaining rugby there for all the wrong reasons. It's um. The, what, what, I remember you telling me a few years ago. I couldn't believe this that it's, it's full on. Like I thought, like it it, it yeah. pulled back some bit. And um, I think we all saw that video that went viral of Steve Thompson a few years ago running up the wing. And the other thing I'd ask yeah. you, the second question I ask you, Dave, as well, is that it's native Gary Halepin, isn't it this year? And I, he was gameskeeper in my former school in Sussurian College in Rastrea. So like, talk to me about yeah. him because you would have played with him and like. Um, you know, like yeah. you seem like a real bubbly character. Yeah, like I suppose. First of all, going back to the rugby side of things, and um, yeah, it's full on rugby. The only thing that's uncontested is the scrum. Right. Um, apart from that, everything else is full on. And you look, if you know yourself better than anybody, that there's no such thing as a friendly game of rugby on the pitch. Yeah. You know, all it takes is one big tackle, and everybody the red mist develops on everyone. So it's quite a it's quite a tough game. Right. Um, but yeah, going going on to poor Gary. Um, I mean, when we got the news, it was, you know, unbelievable, I suppose, is the best way to describe it, similar to the Anthony Foley, to Anthony's passing. Um, it's, you know, it's it's tough, I'll be honest with you. Um, you alluded to Gary being a colourful character. I would put him as he was the, the life and soul of every, certainly every Irish rugby team that I played with. Um, you know, he, he made touring uh, a real pleasure. 
He was a uh, light and he was the heart and soul of every single dressing room. Um, I could tell you some stories and, you know, well, I actually probably couldn't because I'd be arrested if I did. Um, but he was, no, he was such, he was such a character. Um, you know, he, he really made the hard days in rugby being away in Australia and South Africa that little bit easier. Um, he'd take over the mic on the bus, uh, traveling to training, traveling to games, and he would just entertain everybody. I mean, there was certainly, other than, other than rugby, um, and being an athlete himself, he certainly had another talent, and that was to make everybody else happy. And I, you know, I was a young chap in the '95. I was 21 in the '95 tour or the '95 World Cup in South Africa. Gary's famous uh, try-scoring incident when he he gave Sean Fitzpatrick uh, the fingers, yeah. the fingers on the pitch. Yeah, um, but uh, like he just made that tour so much easier for us to. To get through and it's difficult it's difficult you know it sounds great looking in from the outside you're away in south africa for six weeks uh playing rugby doing something that you'd love and most people would give their left arm to be there but it, there is times it gets tough it gets lonely you're living in a hotel room living out of a suitcase for six weeks you know living with <laughs> living with roommates who um who wouldn't be the tidiest in the world and i wouldn't be the tidiest myself so it, it look it does get difficult. You do get lonely. It's a long way from home, being away in South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, yeah. and uh, you need you need the comforts of uh, of somebody like Gary. But yeah. again, you know, it's just mind-boggling to think he's gone now. Um, he was very much part of the legends scene, legends games uh, when he retired. Um, you know, and you just would enjoy when he'd come in the door. Um, you know, he could just effortlessly make people cry with laughter. Um, and to think that he's gone now is just a, it's a shame. It's sad. It's, you know, it's extremely difficult on his wife and children. Um, but, you know, and these close friends like Mick Galway, who would have been really close to them, Nick Popplewell, Gabriel Fulcher. Um, you know, it's tougher on those guys. I knew Gary as a, as a friend and a rugby player. Those guys knew him really as their brother and all the guys he played with in London Irish as well. No, he's, yeah, look, we all share that. I actually came across a video on YouTube there a few weeks ago of him with Mick Galway in the Dolphin Clubhouse. They had a night there and he seemed like a really nice guy. But um, the, the other question I'd like to ask you, Dave, is that before we move on, is that do you still take part in the Bermuda rugby? Does that still go on every year? Yeah, it, uh, it was cancelled um, two years ago um, because of COVID. Uh, it went ahead last year, but on a much smaller scale. Uh, I didn't attend last year. I decided to go to Dubai instead right. and play tens rugby and uh, make a complete fool of myself. Um, whatever about 15s, um, yeah. tens is a different story again. Um, yeah, but it's, it's it's going ahead now again this year. And that's, it's I suppose, for in layman's terms, it's the World Cup for golden oldies. Right. Um, but again, it's not so much golden oldies. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, Victor Matfield turned up for the Springboks. Uh, yeah. just to get a few games under his belt and uh, two months later he's back playing for the actual Springboks and captaining them in a World Cup scenario right. so it's not you know again it's not for the faint hearted um, out there uh, if you're in there's no hiding out there this, as I say it's the same rules the only thing that's uncontested are the actual scrums everything else is, is full on but I describe it as it's a nice place to get the shit kicked out of you 10 days in Bermuda um, to play three games of rugby, it's it's probably worth the pain. Yeah. Jeez, I, I reckon you're half mad, Dave. Are you? But like you, you enjoy the you enjoy the release, though, don't you? Of the rugby, the physical aspect, and getting out there, getting stuck in. 
yeah, look, it's uh, when you when you retire, um, there's no matter what you do or where you look, you will never be able to replace uh, your playing days. Um, you can go coaching, you can go playing at these legends games, um, but it's just not the same. It's you know what I people always ask me, what do I miss the most about the game? And I miss the dressing room. That's what you miss. You miss the crack. You miss the lads. You miss the Gary Halpins. Um, you know, tying your pants together, flushing your keys down the toilet, um, putting bananas in your shoes. I'll tell you great. I'll tell you one good story just about, about Gary, what he did to a guy in London Irish who got a new, like London Irish would have been the kind of, I suppose, the pretty boys of of of, of rugby to a certain degree back in back in the day. And some guy rocked up to the car park in his new Jag. Um, Gary took offence to that in his uh, in his estate Volvo. And um, he decided to buy a fish, a, a raw, fresh fish, right. and uh, cut a little hole in the seam of this new jag, this guy's seat. Yeah. Stuffed the fish up inside it. And um, so, like today, it was impossible to find. So you can just imagine over time the stench coming from that. Um, I think the guy actually had to get the car, he had to get his seat replaced completely eventually when he found the drips of raw fish dripping yeah. out of the, um, but that, that's, that's what you miss. And I know that sounds kind of stupid. Like, yeah, a lot, a lot of people would say they miss the pitch and they miss the tackle, but <clears throat> when they think long and hard about it, it's the lads is what they miss. They miss the crack. They miss having a few points after the game with them. Um, you know, the good times, the bad times, but there's nothing. And I mean, nothing that I personally know anyway, that can replicate that sense of atmosphere in a dressing room after a game, be it whether you lose or whether you win, and the camaraderie you have with the guys, um, you die on that pitch to do anything for those guys. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing you can do. Look, I've coached, as you, as you well know yourself, and yeah. I find it very frustrating um, looking in from the outside and I suppose guys not doing, not being prepared to do what you would have done you know, I get frustrated with the excuses and the lack of commitment and so on and so forth. Um, but it's a different generation now as well. And that, that's something I need to come to terms with as well that, you know, and, you know, maybe rugby isn't their first priority in life, whereas with me, it probably was at the time. And um, that's why I get frustrated. And, you know, you bring it home with you and you get into, you can't, you can't cut off. You can't shut down. Well, I can't shut down anyway. Yeah. You're constantly yeah. thinking about it, thinking about the results, thinking of ways to improve, better the team, better the players. And also everybody is an individual as well. And you've got to treat people as individuals um, as opposed to just one big block. So that's that can be quite time-consuming and difficult as well. But look, look, that's what I miss about it, Nevin. Like as long as I can continue to put, up, put on the boots, I'll be a lot longer pushing up daisies. Um, so as long as I can do it, um, I, I'll continue to do it. At whatever level it, it it has, you know, it's whatever level I can continue at, I will continue to do it. Yeah. Um, my last AAL game was with Sunday as well, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, so I think I would have been, what would I have been, 45, 46 at that stage. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, I loved it because that was, that allowed me to go back to being a player and being in the dressing room with the lads, you know, not as a coach, as an external looking in from the outside and trying to be one of the players. It's you can't do it. It's never it's never the same.
Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think you should have to apologise for your frustrations because I, I'm sure that's what made you the player you are and Roy Keane goes on about the same type of thing. And it's actually interesting. I was listening to Paul O'Connell on a podcast recently and he said the same thing, whether it's junior rugby or junior hurling, you miss that um, that crack in the dressing room more than anything. But uh, I actually yeah. remember that. I think I remember your last game with Sunday as well. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> you love the physical <laughs> stuff. I think with a, with a five-on-one overlap, I think you still boshed your man and then you gave the ball that. <laughs> but, uh, and he didn't give the pass later. Yeah. Before we, uh, before we talk about drone career, Dave, I want to talk about the big one this weekend is uh, England versus Ireland. Uh, just give us your thoughts on the game and how do you think it'll go? Yeah, look, um, Ireland obviously have been playing extremely well. Like They were caught in France um, by a very, very good French side. And they, I think people must remember that. I think... France at the moment would be able to compete with any of the big boys, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, England, you know, they're, they're there, thereabouts. They're planning, they're preparing for the World Cup next year. Um, and they have a very young side and a very good side, which is, which is worrying for the rest of the countries, I think. Um, they seem to have got it right. They've spent a lot of years kind of doing different things, um, struggling with the club scene in, in France, players not being released uh, and so on and so forth, but they seem to have got it right now. Um, and the AIDS profile is absolutely perfect for a right assault at the World Cup next year. And it's in their home territory. And like you take France out of France, and I think they're beatable on any day. But you put France in, you when you play France in France, it's a different kettle of fish. It's like playing Munster in Thoman Park. Um, they're different animals there. It's again, I don't know what it is or how it manifests, but it's uh, it's something special. Like it's something special to play in. In, in Thoman Park with Munster uh, and for these French guys playing in Stade Francais and in their own country, um, they're a different breed, they're a different animal um, and, they've, and they've got it right. Uh, the game at the weekend, um, I think England, I've never seen a poor England side in all my time. Um, you know, they may have one eye on the World Cup as well, <clears throat> but they're slightly different in terms of, they're similar to Ireland and they, they need to be winning games all the time. Like yeah. Ireland need to be winning games to attract sponsorship, to, to attract big crowds. England are slightly the same, um, but yes, they still can afford to have probably one eye on the World Cup. Uh, and look, they're, they're a young side, the likes of Marcus Smith, the, and these guys there, they're, they're very good players, but they're still not at the calibre. They, the likes of Martin Johnson and Ben Kay and all these guys were there. They're still not established for some... I, I couldn't tell you what type of game plan they play um, because I don't know. They're, they seem to be caught between two stools at the moment. Um, and we look at Eddie Jones. I think he's good for the game. He's a colourful character. He doesn't. He certainly doesn't uh, hold his punches and he, he says what he wants to say. Yeah. Um, but I just think if there was ever a time that Ireland could put, could put a good score on against England, it's going to be next Saturday. Right. And Ireland are, playing, Ireland are playing a brand of rugby now that has been alien to them for the last couple of years. You know, Joe Smith did great things for Ireland, but I just think he was too... Rigid. He, he was too rigid in his game plan. You know, it was. I think he destroyed Conor Murray, I'll be honest with you. Um, Conor Murray now has, has turned from an attacking scrum half into a box-kicking legend, I suppose that's the way you want to put it. Yeah. Um, you know, everything is box-kick. It was very, very slow... Um, tedious. Um, it was. I described it as playing rugby by numbers. So you did, 
this in one part of the field, you do that in another part of the field. And there was no heads up rugby being played. It was box kick. It was a 50-50 ball when it came down. But if those box kicks were, were, were mis-executed, then it gave the, the attacking back three a huge amount of scope against Ireland. And look, we were found out in the World Cup, the last World Cup. Um, all we had, all they had to do was stop the one-out runners. Yeah. And that was the Ireland's game plan dead in the water. There was no ingenuity. There was no change from what Joe Smith had done for the last couple of years. Um, it was very, very easy to see what they were doing. And all you needed was one or two lunatics on the other team who were prepared to throw themselves at the likes of CJ Stander yeah. uh, coming around the corner. And that was Ireland's game plan stopped. So under Farrell, it's a different world completely. Um, and I think Jemison Gibson Park has has kind of reiterated, revigorated Irish rugby to a level that I've never seen before. That new that game when they played New Zealand uh, and they beat them. Like Ireland have beaten New Zealand now three out of the four out of their last four attempts, which is I don't know if there's any other country that I know that I can that I can say have done that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but the speed. And the accuracy at Jemison Gibson Park plays that. And I mean, obviously, he needs his forwards to be out singing off the same hymn sheet as well to do that. But like, he can pass the ball now and he knows that there's guys coming at full tilt and their speed. There's no looking around. There's no wondering what's going to happen next, given time, given uh, defences time to get organised. The ball is just whipped from the base of the breakdown um, and it's going to uh, <clears throat> someone like Tyke Furlan coming at full tilt. And that's not a sight you want to see. Oh. I've yeah. seen you. I've seen you. I've seen you never times coming full tilt, right. and uh, yeah. I'm not too sure if I'd be happy to put myself in front of you. You know, right. and and Tyke would be the same. You know, just a an immensely powerful uh, individual coming at full tilt. What is he? 1920 stone yeah. with nothing but venom in his in his eyes, and and again he's got the option to offload. He's got the skill set to offload. They can play a complete brand now, and it's impossible to stop if um, if they keep going. Yeah, no, I think, well, good solid Wexford farmer there, but I think the important thing, he's able to pass to and the offloads. I think they're kind of they're kind of going for, the, they're copying Japan, aren't they really? What Japan were in the World Cup, fast game, and Andy Farrell would probably, be, I think, be better than Joe Smith. But the other question I'd ask you as well, Dave, is that, like, I know we're on about Eddie Jones, he's a good character for the game, he's kind of like the Jose Mourinho. Would you, if Ireland did put up a score in England, would you, would you, do you think they'll keep Eddie Jones as England coach? I think they will. I think they'll give him until the end of the World Cup. Yeah. And um, that's when his contract, I think, is up for renewal anyway. So, um, you know, he's obviously got a strategy. He's got a game plan. And um, he, again, as I say, they would be they would have won eye very much on the World Cup and blooding young players as well. And England normally have a knack of getting it right. They, have, they get their timing right. I mean, unfortunately, Ireland have never been beyond uh, the quarterfinals of a World Cup. Like England have won the World Cup and have been to numerous finals and semi-finals along the way, um, so they have an act of getting it right. They have the infrastructure. They have a, they have a fantastic league over there where they can, uh, where they can blood players. You know, like when you consider Ireland of only four professional teams, you look at England, the Gallagher Premiership and uh, the Second Division under that. I'm not too sure what it's called. They're professional teams, and that's where they can choose players from. So it's. Uh, it's a different. It's a different system. Um, in fairness to the IRFU, I think they got it right over here. They yeah. control the players. They can, you know, if um, Johnny, if they don't want Johnny Sexton to play one week, um, he doesn't play. And um, whereas in England, you know, you're, yes. you're, you're, you have to be loyal to two paymasters. Um, he's got to play for his club as well, whilst at the same time playing for his country. So they can't exactly control his game time. 
Whereas in Ireland, they've got full control over that, and that's why they've done so well. Uh, there's there's two final questions I want to ask you before we go on to your own career. Just you touched on Conor Murray there, because I do think you make a very interesting point, and you don't hold back that you think Joe Smith ended his career. Do you think we've probably seen the end of Conor Murray? Because like he looked the last day against Italy, did Craig Casey on the bench, who I saw him for Munster at the weekend, he looked very impressive. Do you think Conor Murray's days could be behind him? Yeah, look, I mean, what is he now? 34? 35? 33, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's, <clears throat> that's kind of the age, unless you're Johnny Sexton, <laughs> that's yeah. the age um, <clears throat> that your professional career at international level is looking, you're looking to wind down anyway. <clears throat> is Conor Murray a fantastic player? Yes, he is. But I think he's been, again, I'll almost say, like he's almost been brainwashed to the point where, like I remember Conor Murray scoring numerous tries, try after try after try, playing for Munster because he had that ability to snipe around the corner. He was almost like another back rower in yeah. defence as well. And you just don't see that anymore now. <clears throat> um, it's and 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 it's also been with Munster and Van Gran as well. Like they just seem to have this this game plan where it's forward dominated, um, and they feel they have a better chance of gaining territory than kicking the ball up in the air than holding onto it. I mean, when Ireland go wide, they're, they're very dangerous. When Munster go wide, they look very dangerous. And, like, you know, I would like to think that Munster, over the next couple of weeks and months, uh, would have changed their game plan since the last time they played. And they're doing well. <clears throat> but to get to a semi-final or a final of the European Cup is almost expected by the people of Munster for Munster. Um, and, you know, Van Gaal will come out and say, look, we're doing well, we're doing well in the... The championship, we're doing well in the in the European Cup, but that's minimum expectations from ex-players and from us people in Munster who who have such an uh, an affection for the uh, for the team. So like we haven't won a trophy in eleven years now, Neville, and like that is not good enough. That is not good enough for the brand that is Munster Rugby. They didn't kick on the last time they won their their last European Cup, but I think it was two thousand and eight. I could be wrong. Um, and they, we, we, we've gone backwards ever since. We've gone backwards with some poor signings. We haven't. I've, I have a big, a big bee in my bonnet about um, foreign players coming in. Yeah, I agree to, with you. Yeah. To Ireland and um, taking the places of young guys who have been born, bred, and came up. But Tomasa Horn is a prime example of that. Like we three South African yeah. seconds and not giving the young fellow a goal, like you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think you know just because they have, and I look, some of them have been absolutely fantastic for Munster and all the other provinces as well. Like Dougie Howlett was an immense John Langford back in my time. He he transformed um, the Munster lineup single-handedly, and they gave everything to the cause. And when they come over, they do buy into it. Um, but in saying that, there is a percentage as well who come over just to increase their pension, yeah. uh, and they don't buy into it. And they're the guys really who who annoy me. Um, it's smart boys, I suppose. Pardon? Smart boys, I suppose. It's about getting the right fellas like Doug Howlett and yeah. John Clifford's. Absolutely. You want you, we don't want guys who are at the end of their careers <clears throat> coming over to increase their pension. We want almost young guys we want younger guys who aren't as established but are hungry still for to win trophies and medal and and win and win medals and that's that, I remember Dougie Howlett saying that was one of his um that's one of the reasons why he came to Munster he still wanted to win medals right um and that for me is the key to it um I'm not too sure if, like rugby has changed now it's a professional game and guys 
they're out to make as much money as they can and fully entitled to do so. And I wouldn't blame them. Like, you're one injury away from nothing. Um, so, but there has to be a buy-in as well. Otherwise, the team suffers, the community suffers, and that's what Monster Rugby is. It's a small community of very loyal supporters who travel the world and put their hands in their pockets. And uh, it means so much to a lot of people and former players. And when they're not doing well, you know, it hurts. It hurts. And, you know, yeah. when you consider the likes of Peter Romani hasn't won a medal for Munster, that's it's mind-boggling. Someone who gives his life and soul to the game. Yeah. And to think that he, he could retire without having a, a medal in his pocket playing for Munster is, is almost unbelievable. Yeah, you, you say that, Dave, though, like, but, like, I, I, I'd be interested to know is how do we, like, we won the we won the Highland Cup in 06, 08, but that's donkey's years ago now. Like we remember it, but like you know, there's young fellas that I know that they don't remember it. Like you know, like how do we catch up with Leinster now? Because we produce, we're producing like the top Tomasa Hearn, but Leinster yeah. produces three more. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I think you've got to look at Leinster like again. You know, if you want to achieve a goal, you've got to fix the process first. Leinster have the correct process; they work very well with the schools. Yeah. Like their schools up there, St. Michael's, Terenure, Black Rock, um, Gonzaga. These schools are producing players that are very, very, they're men coming out of the schools. The, the Leinster branch get in there very early. They give them programs. They look after them. They look after their nutrition. They bring them to camps. Um, and obviously, there's, there's a population situation there as well. They have, like, they have a much bigger population than we do in Munster. Um, I think... To a certain degree, I think Munster got their whole academy structure incorrect. Um, everything now is based out of Dublin. Oh, sorry, based out of Limerick. Um, and you've got, uh, you've got Cork down in the south here. So what you have is you have players now who are traveling to play with Limerick teams um, just because they're in the Munster Academy. And I think Cork rugby is suffering a small bit because of that. Look, I mean, Ocar Khan have been going really, really well for the last couple of years, but this year, not so good. Um, and a lot of the Cork players have transgressed up to Limerick to go to Limerick University instead of UCC. Um, so I think the, the academy is, is, is the key for Munster. Um, Leinster have that right. They have, as I say, they have a conveyor belt of players coming in. I think Leo Cullen um, has done a fantastic job up there, I think. He, you know, he's understated. He doesn't look for notoriety. He doesn't look for all the press. He just goes about his job. The players want to play for him. I mean, like, what was it, 12 players on the Irish team? 12 Leinster players? I mean, that that speaks volumes. And I remember back in my time, we'd always, we'd always have goal-setting sessions with Munster. And obviously, one of our goals would have been to get as many representative players onto the Irish team as possible. And I mean, like, you could have put a Leinster team out on that day, I think it was, well, I'm not too sure, I think it was against the All Blacks, they had 12, 12 yeah. Leinster players playing on that team. And you could have easily filled the other slots with other Leinster players. Um, and that, that is phenomenal. I don't think we'll ever see that again in our lifetime. Yeah. That one team can provide so many players um, for the national side. And it, <clears throat> that's obviously helping Ireland as well. They're, they're cohesive. They know each other. Um, Jefferson Gibson Park plays week in, week out with Johnny Sexton. He knows where he wants the ball. He knows how fast he wants the ball. Um, and that makes a big difference because that is one of the issues with international rugby. You've got guys coming from all different sectors, all different clubs, playing under all different game plans, and it's trying to gel them. And um, 
I see Eddie Jones alluded to it there last week in one of his comments. He said Ireland are probably the most cohesive side in the world at the moment. Like four years ago, he was calling us scummy, the scummy Irish. <laughs> and now, four, yeah, four years later, um, he's considering us to be the best team in the world and making us hot favourites for the game on Saturday. So look, like like Leinster, as I say, it's a machine now. It's almost like a dynasty, and they don't they don't know the word losing. And even when they should lose games, they can still manage to pull it out of the fire. And that's where Munster have got to be as well. That's where they've got to get. The, it's it's a mindset in Leinster. The quality of, of I've watched them train on a few occasions, and the quality of their training sessions is phenomenal. It's the speed at which they work, at which they operate. You know. Do Leinster have a game plan? I don't think they do. They just have a complete set of players on the field at any one time that can play to any type of rugby that's, uh, that, are, that they're confronted with. So, um, do, do, you think, uh, do you think we could do more for the club game? Because you know the club game. You've coached it. Like, um, like I yeah. always think that there should, be a, there should be a senior rugby club in Waterford and Kerry, get a senior club in every county, you know? Because, like, you mentioned yeah. all the schools there in Leinster. Like, in Munster... We don't have as many schools, you know. So do you think the club game should be tapped into more? I, I think the RFU have forgotten about the club game, Neville, I'll be honest with you. Um, they don't view the club game now as an essential tool to creating revenue. And look, the game is professional. Accountants, whether we like it or not, now run the game in Ireland. Um, 90% of the revenue that's created for Irish rugby comes from the senior national men's side. Um, so they don't really need the clubs. To a certain degree, they can scour the world for, for professional players now any of the provinces. Uh, they'll tell you they do. They'll tell you they care about the clubs. But you go to any club game now, uh, from, you know yourself from, from being involved with Sunday as well. And I'd go to a Corkon game or whatever, Corkon against Shannon. And you'd be lucky to get five or 600 people at it. Whereas before, there was thousands. And look, yes, the international players would have been on display in the in, in those days, and now a lot of people are spending their money going to the provincial games, provincial sides. Um, but there is so much more the RFU could do for the club game. But unfortunately, the beast that professional rugby is devours finances at an extremely fast rate. And they need to keep on producing those readies. The, you know, it's the accountants will look at the books at the end of the year and say, you know, things aren't good. COVID obviously affected them. So therefore, the money doesn't transgress down to the grassroots of the game. Yeah. Um, and on the flip side of that, my opinion is that if we don't have a grassroots game, then rugby will die in this country because you won't have the supporters then. You'll have rugby players transgressing into Gaelic, into hurling, into soccer, into golf. And, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with those games. They're, they're fantastic sports, but... Being rugby people, we want the game to flourish in this country. But if we don't have a nucleus, we don't have a foundation, we will not have a, a, a viable product in this country. And you'll, you know, yeah, you'll always fill the internationals, Ireland against England, because people will go to Dublin for the piss up and have a great weekend and spend numerous hundreds and thousands up in Dublin. Yeah. Um, but then when it comes to the lesser games, um, they're just not going to travel. Um, and look, I think with the whole concussion thing as well and the injuries that's happening at the moment, um, I think parents are going to be afraid now to send little Johnny out on the pitch. Um, every time Johnny Sexton gets a knock now at this stage, you know, it's, it's, it's headline news. Yeah. Um, and there is a lot of media, a lot of press about 
concussion-related injuries being associated with other illnesses. And it is it is worrying. It is worrying. We like we've seen what happens in the states with the NFL, and anything where there is litigation, kind of threatened um, unions like the World Rugby and the IRFU and the English Rugby Football Union, they're going to be really cautious about it. And that's why we see so many red cards and yellow cards in today's game. You know, most of those red cards, there's no intent uh, in them, um, but there is force to the head. And they ha- they're, 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 it's going to probably take a generation or two to get that, uh, get that tackle height lower. I mean, for me, it's quite simple. Any tackle above uh, the short the waste of the short um, is a yellow card. And that won't be long changing people um, or else you literally put a, a line across every jersey in the world, uh, a playing line just under the chest line. <clears throat> and if a player tackles above that line, it's a yellow card. And that, and that, that, would, that would stop very quickly the, uh, the head high tackles. But um, look, rugby is in a transition period at the moment. Um, it, it can either get it can either go south or continue to flourish, and unless they get this tackle situation and this concussion uh, scenario, uh, uh, you know, under control, then the grassroots of the game is going to suffer and the, the numbers will dwindle. I mean, it's you yeah. see the numbers yourself, maybe at, 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 at club level, you know, my my club Cork Con. I remember when I joined, there was three minor teams out there. Um, now they struggle. They struggle to get a junior team out in the park. Um, yeah. You know, in Dublin, I remember somebody telling me that they had like 14, 15 senior men's teams. You could, you'd have to get changed in the uh, in the corridors on a training night. They're now down to two teams, yeah. so that has to stop. That those numbers have to grow, and the participation, the enjoyment has to come back into it. Um, and that that that's what that's for me. That's the key to getting the numbers back up again is bring back the amateur side of the game. Let the professional side work away on their own. Bring back the amateurs. Bring back the fun. Um, you know, play Friday night games. Have a few beers in the bar after the game. You know, have a band there. Let the money, let the club create a bit of revenue. Um, not be depending on the same sponsors week in week out. So we could go. We could talk about it forever and ever. You know, and there's lots of people have. No, I, I, I think I, I think you're right. Like the, the spectator wise of the sport has gone through the roof. But the partisan is is very poor, and like and but to be honest with you, Dave, I as I've had I, I Dennis Walsh on the podcast a few years or a few weeks ago, the former court manager, and he said in club hurling has gone way down as well. Like so, I think it's I think it's the new generation now. You're on about the smartphones and everything. I think it's gone way down. You know, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. But look, they won't they won't be they won't be able to hang a hang a picture on the wall. Now, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> Later on, I'm like uh, right. Well, look here, before we might come back to it, but I, I do want to get on to your own career because obviously with the guests I have in the pod, I look back, you won 27 caps for Ireland. Like that was a lot back then. I think you were played 94 to 99, didn't you, Dave? Tell us about your yeah. your Ireland yeah. time and all that. Yeah, so look, I, I you know, I, I suppose I went through the school system. I played in, uh, in CBC here in Cork um, and I was lucky enough to came straight out of school, went to Cork Con. Kirk Conn picked up a few injuries the year I was there, and I was lucky to to get in and play with some legends of the game, the likes of Donald Lenehan, Michael Bradley, Ralph Keyes, Kenny Murphy, Brian Walsh, um, you know, some really established quality players 
international standard and you know they, they take you under their wing like Pat O'Hara came uh, as well and took me under his wing and they look after you um, and they bring you through the system and I was look I suppose I wasn't a half bad player myself in my time I might have been a bit one dimensional um, in, in how I went my business but I was lucky enough then to make I was 21 um, I got called up from the uh, tour to go to Australia in um, in 94 and um, played well out there got my first cap in Australia playing against the likes of Michael Lina, David Campisi all these guys that you would have been in school looking up and looking watching on the TV and suddenly now you're playing against them and swapping jerseys with them after games so it's yeah, that's it's a very long time ago um, a lot of it is a blur to me. I don't remember a lot of those games, I'll be honest with you. Um, but you remember the occasion, certainly. Um, so from then on, I suppose my career went reasonably well. Um, the went on the 95 uh, World Cup to South Africa with, with, with poor Gary Halpin and um, Anthony Foley was there as well, God rest him. And um, played, played reasonably well. Um, I think my, the one claim to fame that I will always hold is that I scored against the All Blacks when, when Jonah Lomu was on the field. Um, and, uh, you know, we played against the Blacks. We did reasonably well. Jonah Lomu got three balls, scored three tries. He was the difference on the day. Yeah. Um, played against, uh, who was next? Japan. Uh, they were next. We, we beat them easily enough. And then we got to the, played Wales to get into the quarterfinal, beat Wales. And then uh, we drew France in the quarterfinal of that World Cup. And uh, unfortunately, you know, we were amateurs at that stage. They were more or less professionals. They caught us in the fitness runs. I, I remember guys being upset that we actually got through to the quarterfinals because they had to go home to work and they knew they'd be in trouble when they got home because they, we had to stay an extra uh, 10 days to play in the quarterfinal of a World Cup. Right. And guys were, you know, guys on the fringe, I suppose, who weren't involved were saying, geez, I have to stay here now for another 10 days. And um, but but not only that, guys also playing on the team knew that they'd, you know, get their knuckles wrapped when they went back because you know they'd extended their holidays beyond their limit. Um so after that, um, yeah, the game went pro in 95. Um a lot of players went to England, a huge amount of Irish players went to London Irish. I went to Bristol with Paul Burke. Yeah. Um, and uh, spent two and a half years over there and <clears throat> look Bev, I, I, I think Bristol will hold their hand up and a lot of people will, they, they got it wrong at the time professionalism was new to them at the time like we had an incredibly awesome team, we had Simon Shaw Josh Lucy, Mark Regan, Robert Jones Paul Burke, Kevin Maggs Fraser Waters it was just a team packed full of stars yeah. but we, were, we were given weights programmes um, uh, to get basically as big and bulky as we could because they thought that's the way the profession of the game was going to go. Lost all uh, lost all my speed, my agility. Um, you know, if you ran at me, I'd kill you. But if you ran to the side of me, I couldn't. I wouldn't be able to get you. Yeah. And then I got. I um. I, I picked up a few injuries along the way. I. I suppose I wouldn't. I wouldn't have held back in terms of the way I played. I was silly enough to take injections just to go training. Um, you know, you break fingers and you, you know, pop a shoulder, break a rib. Um, I had twenty odd operations on my left knee. Um, yeah, I broke both, broke both my ankles and popped both my shoulders. I have five compressed discs now. Um, I have a six-inch plate in my arm. 
Um, and I just look, you know, I just love the game so much that I was prepared to do anything. I remember, I remember breaking my leg and three weeks later, uh, I did this back here in Ireland. I put my leg into my dad's vice out the back in his shit and I cut off the cast with a hacksaw just so I could go back training. Not, it wasn't a final or a game or anything like that. It was just so I could go back training because I love the game so much. Um, so I, I was silly. I was silly. Someone actually asked it because I put you up on our Instagram last night, asked a guest a question, and someone actually asked that about the cast story. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's true. Yeah. 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 I nearly killed myself. I, like, <laughs> I was trying to balance myself on one leg whilst cutting it off with the other one. I'll always remember it. It was uh, my, my dad's old rusty wood saw, just yeah. cutting it off with that. Just literally jumped on the bike that night, then back down to Cork Con and ran out on the field and. Right. You know, so ultimately, what happened to me then was I, I ruptured uh, my left Achilles in my ankle. Uh, successfully rehabbed from that, and literally the first time I was back full training, my right one ruptured as well, um, and that ruptured off the bone. So that was kind of more or less the end of me. So a, lit a litany of injuries, I suppose. Um, and then look, oh no, I took advice. From, from the medics and yeah. with the Achilles, with Achilles uh, injuries, they could re-rupture again. And I probably would never get back to the level that I was at, I suppose, both physically and mentally, because I'd always have it in the back of my mind, you know, what's going to go now? And I suppose I would have always been a half empty glass type of guy. I, I suppose I'd be, I'd have worried about the future a lot. I'd have worried about getting injured and losing my contract and uh, didn't have a great education behind me. I didn't go on to third level education. I just pursued rugby at the highest level I possibly could and gave everything to that. And I am, if I am to give any bit of advice to young guys out there, <clears throat> have a plan B, um, have something else to fall back on because rugby is ruthless now. Uh, you get a letter saying, thanks for your services and best of luck. Um, and that's it. That's literally what I got uh, from the union at the time was a letter saying, thanks a million, uh, great servant to the game. Uh, we wish you well in the future. Well, what did you go on and do after rugby? Because did you did you get um did the ex players look after you? Because I remember when it was, I did first year in CBS and you all, and I remember you came in to give us a talk. Like you know, did you get right. some sort of gig where you were going around promoting the game, or what happened to you? After yeah, so well, I, I, it was a job. I'll be honest with you. Now, but I, I, I you know I didn't have as a great education behind me. I, I wanted to stay in rugby uh, because it was all I knew. At the time, um, I suppose I'd done a master's in it by, by, for playing for Ireland and going through all the all the bits and pieces that you need to do to get to that level. Um, so I went for, <clears throat> went working as a development officer for the IRFU and promoting the games throughout schools. But it was, it was you know it was coaching non rugby playing schools. Um, I didn't really, unfortunately, didn't get to to work with the kind of next generation of players coming through because I felt I would have been able to pass on a good bit of knowledge to them. Um, so it was kind of dealing in, I suppose, non-rugby playing schools, and <clears throat> I had a, I had a, a cohort of, uh, I had a, a group of coaches then as well that I'd managed that also went into the school. So I was a regional development manager, I suppose, and I looked after their schedules and I make sure that they were trained to a certain level and so on and so forth. And, but <clears throat> the, for me, the the, the best. Part of the job was actually abandoning grammar of school with, 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 with you all um, and watching the enthusiasm of those young guys uh, looking to learn how to play the game. 
so I did that for about six years and <clears throat> then it just literally got to the stage where I felt that I needed to get away from rugby. Um, <clears throat> I struggled big time, Nev, I'll be honest with you, with the, um, when I came out of the game, uh, I struggled, I suppose, with my mental issues, where I feel, you know, I suffered from depression, um, just wondering where life was going to take me and yeah, where life was going to take me. Can I ask you about that? Because that was one of the other questions that I'd written down is that like you were kind of ahead of your game, you know, like everyone is coming out talking about mental health now and depression, but like you were talking about it before it was ever fashionable, you know, so I have to give you massive credit for that, like, you know. Yeah, uh, look, a lot of people say that you were quite brave in what you did. So I, I came out publicly with it and stuff like that and did a big article and did a few radios, radio shows and I speak, in, I speak to some schools actually. Uh, about it now, some, you know, kind of fifth, sixth year students who are able to understand the whole concept of of life. Um, but yeah, I, I, I struggled big time. I couldn't find an identity for myself. You know, you're gone from being at the top of Mount Everest to right down at base camp, literally overnight, a flick of a switch. And I often describe it as the day the phone stopped ringing was the day I retired because you're gone from uh, a very viable commercial commodity to nothing. Um, and that's that's the game. That's professional sport. That's life. That's that's working in any business that you'd ever work in. You know, as long as you're good, as long as you're a, a viable product and you can make do something good for someone else, then they'll be wanted. But as soon as the day you're gone. And my ability was to play rugby at a very high level. Uh, and that was taken from me, um, be it through my own fault or through a lack of medical intervention, proper advice being given. Um, that's, I suppose it's irrelevant in, in some respect, but it just happened to me. And I really, really struggled after. Um, I also lost my dad uh, to suicide, which was uh, not an easy thing. Um, to cope with, because um, yeah. you know everything kind of compounded yeah. at the same time. So you know, got married, <laughs> um, lost my dad, and finished the sport that I love, and that was there putting a, a crust to my on putting food on, on on the table for me. You know, um, so I struggled, and there was back then there wasn't. There wasn't any support. There was no support system in place whatsoever. Um, today, you have the Rugby Players Union for the guys coming out and the likes of Marcus Horn working, doing fantastic work with them. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's a lonely place. It can be very, very lonely. And as I say, you go down the route of coaching or trying to stay involved as a kind of a, a balance to still stay involved in the game and try to rekindle that that feeling you have, but you, it's irrelevant. It's yeah. you you can't do it. You actually there's no way you can replicate that feeling unless you're taking off the jersey with the lads and washing the boots in the showers and you know having a few beers and cokes after the game. Yeah. So I went down that route and um, it was difficult, but look, I got through it with you know. My wife was there for me at the time, and um, we had twin girls then, and uh, I went working. So I left the rugby union, and I just decided I'd like to try and get into the medical game. Um, it was something that I did a bit of research in, and 
spoke to a good few people about and went so that's and that's where I am today now I work with a very good company called Affidayum and we do diagnostic imaging around the country and they're quite big in Europe so I'm kind of business development manager for them I've been with them for the last six years and uh, that's going well and so but look still the, the the black dog is still very much there in the corner always looking and you do get you get moments of toughness yeah um, you think back to your, your your playing days and you know you think back to the way it was and uh, how life was back then and it was it was carefree like you were being paid to do something that you do anyway like you know and like there was you know there's win bonuses involved but like to me i would have paid money to win games um you know when you see when you when you see soccer players now and rugby players getting win bonuses to play rugby i just it just baffles me i'll be honest with you as to why that is even included in their in their contracts if they don't want to win then my recommendation is get rid of them or they shouldn't be in the game anyway um yeah but like but honest with you dave like um like uh, I suppose you were playing at the wrong time, like you know, because like I there's a buddy of mine now, and he's his father also committed suicide, and even like I know like even I was playing for the well there at the weekend, and we I actually played well, and we had a massive win, and then all the Alcadoos are coming in, and I was thinking, geez, my old fella would have been the first in the pub talking shit, yeah. but he's not there, like you know, but like what's awful yeah. is that like because of the likes of you coming out and speaking about this. Now there is supports there, you know. So like, and like when you look at it, there was light at the end of the tunnel because of likes you coming out speaking. And now you have two lovely girls. You have a nice family, you know. So at the end of the day, it might have been tough, and I suppose rugby was in the wrong place at the time that you probably gave up earlier because of you weren't looked after professionally. But looking back on it, I know it was tough at the time, but you know you're probably in a good place now, and it's probably worked out. Yeah. Right. And, yeah, yeah, and I look. You ask me, do I have regrets? Then absolutely. If you could go back and do things differently, you, you certainly would have. I wouldn't have put my body on the line as much as I did. Um, but I don't have any regrets in terms of how I got to where I got to go. Um, yeah. I did, you know, I look around at young players today now, and they have more talent than I ever had on their baby finger. But I worked really, really hard. I made lots of sacrifices. And, um, you know, if, if anybody wants to use me as an example of you can make anything happen once you work at it and you're prepared to make sacrifices, then I'm the model they should show um, because that's exactly what I did. Um, I, I trained harder than I think anyone ever did at that time. Um, you know, I remember going up to, um, I lived up there on the Oleol Road and played with Brian Dillon's, but I used to use Brian Dillon's pitch in the tank field as kind of my training ground and going up there with skipping ropes and being laughed at by people doing the extra bits. But I suppose ultimately it was me then who had the last laugh at the end of the day. I was capped at 21. I think I was the youngest forward to be captain 100 years for Irish rugby. So, you know, I achieved my goal through hard work and sacrifice. And, you know, again, that's my advice to anyone out there. It doesn't matter what ability you have what level of intelligence you 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 were blessed with, um, or not blessed with? 
um, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. And I, and I really mean that. You know, you work hard, you make the sacrifices, and without sacrifices, you're not going to get there. You look at the likes of Ronnie, Ronnie O'Sullivan, who I think is probably one of the most talented sportsmen in the world. But behind the scene, Ronnie practices six, seven, eight hours a day. You know, it's not, it, it, he, has, he has a natural ability, but he works bloody hard at it to get yeah. to where he got to go. And, um, you know, it doesn't just happen. You look at Johnny Wilkinson, you know, he's kicking stats for England. You know, Johnny would go out Christmas morning with a bag of balls and spend two hours kicking balls over a post. You know, they're the things people don't see. Um, they're, the, they're the extra bits you have to do because if you're not doing it, I can guarantee you someone else is and they'll take your place eventually. Well, hard work beats talent any day of the week. That's just they always say that. Um, and I suppose you're the epitome of that, Dave. But a uh, final few questions I'd like to ask you, Dave, is um, who's the best player? Or someone actually sent this in, obvious one, like, you know, who's the best player you played with and played against? Okay, on, 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 unquestionably, I'll answer that slightly different. Uh, the, the most talented player I ever played with and probably didn't ful- fulfill his true potential is Eddie Halby. Right. Uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Like I played with the greats. I played with Keith Wood, uh, an incredible player. Absolutely had everything, had the drive, the ability, the skill level. Um, you know, Keith probably fulfilled his true potential. I look at the likes of Eddie Halvey, and that guy had so much talent that he wasted. And look, Eddie will be the first to, we've spoken about it, and Eddie would be the first to put his hand up and he say he made a bollocks of it. Um, you know. Probably drank too much, um, you know, became a, a superstar in Limerick, you know, became the the guy every girl wanted to be with and every guy wanted to be. Yeah. Um, and, like, I think he ended up getting something like 10 caps. He should have 140 caps, three lines tests. He was that talented. He was that good. He was, I remember playing with Eddie in a few games, and I hope he doesn't mind me talking about this, but Eddie would come in on a Friday night, like into the bedroom, two and three in the morning with a few, with a f- good few beers on board and get up the following day and get man of the match for Munster. Right. You know, he, he had that much talent. Um, and I just hate, you know, I hate to see people like that not fulfill their true potential. Um, yeah. like that guy didn't even have to train. He was, he was just immense. He, he had soccer trials in England. Um, he played Gaelic football at county level. Um, he was just immense. So he would be definitely the most talented guy I ever played with. I think Keith Wood would be up there in terms of the best player I ever played with. Um, just he was inspirational on and off the field, in the dressing room, on the pitch. Yeah. Put his body on the line uh, and wasn't afraid to do it. You know, had both his shoulders reconstructed by the age of 22 or 23. Um, was lucky enough they went to Harlequins and fell in with a very good team and he just he just went on from there and uh, I know he's got a young son now in Munchens I think who's who's doing really well as well so hopefully the next generation are starting to come through yeah um, you talk about the hardest that the hardest opponent um, yeah. I suppose on a, look on a once-off situation I suppose you'd have to put Lomo down there as uh, I played <laughs> I've obviously played against him in the uh, in the '95 World Cup, but I also played sevens against him, believe it or not, in Hong Kong in the Hong Kong sevens. And um, now, like wherever you you know, however difficult it is in 15 rugby in 15s rugby to get a hold of someone like that and bring him to ground in sevens where you've got so much space, 
and he's got so much power and speed and ability and skill. It was it was frightening to see him on the pitch. Yeah. Um, we we got to the quarterfinals of that tournament, and <laughs> the front row was myself, Paddy Johns, and um, Mick Galway right. against against John Olomu, Eric Rush, and Joey Vandieri. Right. Um, so I think it was forty nine nil. I wouldn't have seen you as a sevens player or Mick Galway, Dave. Oh, jeez, Will, you didn't see me in my youth now, Nev, I'll be right. honest with you. I was, uh, I was, I was quick enough. Right. Um, but I, again, you know, skill level, I suppose, wasn't there. But that's, that's a different world. It's a different generation. There was more of an aesthetical thing for us to be sending a team out to Hong Kong than actually competing in the, in the, in the competition. Um, but it was, you know, Playing in the quarterfinals of that in that tournament that year against that particular New Zealand team who went on to win it, you know Dallas Seymour, Christian Cullen, um, they had just some superstars playing on that team and they just absolutely obliterated us. And um, so he, like Lomo, would have been up there in terms of the once-off superstar um, played against. But in terms of longevity, then you would have to maybe I'd follow Lawrence Delalio. For me, would have been, I suppose, one of my main rivals both in Bristol when he was playing with Wasps and I and, and Ireland and England as well. And you know, I don't think we got on that well on the pitch or off the pitch, but you know, that still doesn't curtail me from giving him the respect he deserves as a rugby player. Yeah, uh, he was very good. He was he was a leader. Again, I'd say both on and off the pitch, um, he had it all. Had the size, had the power, had the skill, had the bulk, had the determination. And obviously went on to have a great career, um, a fantastic career, and um, so he would probably would be up be up there with, let's say, probably one of the hardest competitors. He never took a backward step, and that's something for me that earns respect. Yeah. Um, and I'll always judge someone on the respect, the amount of respect that I that I afford them. Uh, final few questions, Dave. Is that um, I, I'll just ask you quickly: Is who do you think should be the next monster coach or the next monster setup? Uh, have you put your name oh. in that? And um, oh, the other thing no. I'd ask is um, is the final thing we were talking about world rugby. There, what, what more do you think they could improve the game of world rugby? Because like you look at the next World Cup, it's going to be on in France. Uh, Ireland missed out on that, but I don't like everyone there. There was rumours going around that they're going to kick Italy out and bring South Africa in. Like you know, like I think. The next World Cup should be on in Italy. They should be helping Italy rather than booting them out. What more do you think we can help to yeah, move the game? See, that goes back to my argument again that you know the the rugby professional game is run by accountants now. Um, and if there's if there's ever a game that's not going to be sold out, it's going to be Ireland against Italy or England against Italy. There's going to be empty seats in the stadium, so you can you can't imagine that there'd be a there'd be empty seats if South Africa came into the equation or even Argentina came into the equation and they would their television rights would go through the roof. They'd be able to expand the game down to South Africa. The Six Nations in South Africa would be a would be something new, would be something exciting. Um, like Italy haven't won a game, is it 36 or 37 Six Nations games now on yeah. the bounce? Yeah. They won, seven years they haven't won a game. Like that for me, it's no good for the game. It's it's you know Italy. They'll always I describe them they're like a mini in a Formula One race. They'll keep going. They'll keep trying, but they'll never win it. They'll never. There's no way they might catch Wales or Scotland or Ireland as they have done on the bounce once in a lifetime. But that's that's gone now. 
that's finished. Um, Italian rugby, they provide their national team coming from two teams, Zebra and Treviso. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's not sustainable. Um, soccer is king in, in Italy, and that's where the government are going to put their money. Um, I, you know, I know Stephen Abood and Conor O'Shea did a lot of work there on the ground at underage level and tried their best. And I think Stephen Abood is actually still over there. Uh, Stephen used to work in the RFU and, 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 and was taken on board by the Italians to, to develop the game. Um, they, they have done great work. But it's, it comes down to numbers now. It's a, the population. They don't have the grassroots. So you'd play them, would you? Um, I, what, I would what I would do is I'd introduce a relegation system in the Six Nations. Right. That, that would make it exciting. Yeah. Um, you would run the risk of teams like Wales and Ireland and Scotland and even England probably not being involved on a, you know, on a year-to-year basis. But my God, it would make, the, it, would make it interesting. Like yeah. Imagine if Ireland were playing Wales and the loser was to be out of the Six Nations the following year. I, I, I can't see it happening because I think the Blazers won't let it happen. Yeah. Um, but to me, that would be the fairest way. Look, it's like any of the AAL teams, Nev. You know, if if they finish bottom of their league, they're relegated. You know, so why should it be any, why should it be any different for for the national teams and the professional teams as well? Yeah. Yeah. It's. It's it's cutthroat now. It's ruthless. Um, who who do you want to see as monster coach? Look, I uh, I'd love to see a homegrown coach, whoever it might be. I I, I don't know where um, where he come from. Mike Prendergast uh, surely would come into. Yeah, yeah. Mike yeah. would. I think is certainly there thereabouts. He's done a great job in the in the, in the few games that he has been as as appointed head coach. Um, he knows the system. He knows the clubs. He knows the schools, and I think that's why Declan Kidney would have been so successful in his time. Would you bring Kidney back? Yeah, yeah, Declan. It's it's a different world now, Dev, Dev, to the to the time when Declan was here. Um, I I don't know would he struggle with it. The club scene is different. The school scene is different. You know, the the monster setup is completely different. Declan's time, you know, what that man did with Munster when he was there was incredible. Um, I don't know, he, he, he's director of rugby in London Irish. You know, I don't know, would, I don't know, would they be able to afford him? Yeah. Or ultimately, would he want to do it? Um, he's, you know, Declan would be a kind of a honest enough man. Um, he might say, look, I've had my time. I did, I've, I've done my piece. The game has moved on. I'm quite happy in London. Um, working away with London Irish and they're, they're doing really, really well in the premiership over there. Um, so I don't know would he want to come back and if he doesn't want to come back then it's not the right fit whereas Prendergast certainly would be the, the right fit. He's, he's involved with Munster now um, and for me the key to it is knowing the structures, knowing the foundation levels, knowing knowing how important the Munster Senior Cup is to the clubs. You know, you might say to me, why, why is that relevant to a professional game? Because it is relevant. Because that's that's what monster people are. They're the clubs. You know, they all come through the clubs. It's 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 the life and soul, especially in Limerick. It's the community. It's it's where they have their pints on a Saturday night after the games, and they're the people who who go to Toman Park um, and stand on the terraces and roar and shout their heads off. And they're the people that give monster that extra buzz. 
uh, when they when, when they play on the pitch. So for me, it's understanding Munster rugby. It's different to Leinster. It's different to Ulster. It's different to Connacht. It's the clubs in Munster that make Munster rugby what it is. And I think they've neglected that to a certain level now. Uh, yeah, I think they've, they have, there's no two ways about it. You know, they, they have the right now to take a player from a club game um, uh, who's been training with the club for the last three or four years. They come up to a semi-final of an All-Ireland League and they want Jim O'Brien to go holding bags for the Munster team and he misses the club final. Or if someone needs it 40 minutes coming back from um, from injury from the from the Munster squad, you know, they can almost force, you know, the club to play that player instead of someone who's been there week in, week out. And that's wrong to me. You need, and that's why you need to understand the club game. You need to understand the grassroots because ultimately that's what Munster rugby stands for. Um, and it's, as I say, it's different to all the other provinces. Are you doing any coaching yourself now at the moment, Dave? And you're with FAD, is it? And what what else do you do in your spare time, I suppose? Just yeah, no. Still go down to Ardmore? <laughs> not, not as much as I used to. Not as much as I used to. Um, I'm, I'm someone who likes to stay active all the time. It just keeps the brain ticking over and, you know, I like working away in the garden and so on and so forth. Um, but no, not, no coaching level. I, Lev, I, I find it frustrating. Um, and I take it too personal and stuff like that. And even young fellas, like, no? Yeah, look, yeah, absolutely. But I, that's fine in a one-off situation. But in terms of coaching, being a head coach somewhere, no, it's it's not for me anymore. I'll be honest with you. It's a different generation, Evan. I can't deal with the excuses. I can't deal with them. I, and the excuses are different now than they were back in my time. They don't even lie anymore now. They, they actually just tell the truth. Right. So I, I I give you one example, and it's a, I think it's a great story. Um, I hope you're not going to name me, no one. No, 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 no. It's in the club. It's in the club. Slightly higher division than than Sunday as well. Right. Um, on Thursday night before an AAL game, I, I get a text on my phone, and the the text says, "Hi, Dave. It's uh, blah 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 here. Um, I can't come training because it's my sister's dead's." Right. So I'm 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 looking at the phone anyway, and I'm saying. So I text back, uh, "What has this got to do with you coming training?" And he texts back saying, "My mom said I have to be there to wave her goodbye." All right. Yeah, yeah. Then you get texts like, "It's raining. Are we training?" You know, there's there's a Champions League game on tonight. We can't come training. Yeah. And then you're speaking to someone, as I said, who um, who would cut his cast off after three, three weeks of a break and just to go back training. Yeah. So I found it very difficult to come down. And I think the players, because they're a different generation and there's, I don't have any qualms or issues or problems with any of those players. It's just a different generation, different time yeah. now. And um, I get frustrated. Yeah. They get frustrated and nobody ends up happy. So, Are you still writing with the Evening Echo? Yeah, yeah, I, I love doing that actually. I've 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 uh, I've penned now for the Echo for the last I suppose ten years if not longer, and um, <clears throat> I view it as a privilege. Uh, I really do. Yeah. Um, there is there isn't many people who get the opportunity to voice their opinion on a public platform, um, and I I do it. And look, I'll be honest with you, Nev, I I don't hold back. And it's <clears throat> John McHale is the editor there, and I sent it to John from day one. I said, John, look. 
I'll do it on this on, on these terms is that I'm not going to tow any party lines. You know, I'll give you my opinion and whether my opinion is correct or whether it's wrong. Um, that's irrelevant to me. You're asking me for my opinion. You yeah. know, you're not asking me to give the opinion of what the average population are thinking. I'll give you my opinion. And look, I've ruffled feathers. Um, I've upset people. I've lost friends because of it, which is which is sad. I'll be honest with you. You can't you can't afford to lose friends. You you upset the women there a few years ago, didn't you? I did. I did. I did. I did. But again. You know, it was coming up to the Women's World Cup, and I said, look, I said, look, I don't like watching the women's version of the game, but that's not to say that I don't want women playing rugby. You know, I think they should go and play rugby. It's 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 a fantastic sport, and it's it's so important for people's social skills and connections for work and jobs and so on and so forth. And they get to travel the world and meet other people. But I just at the time I didn't like. I don't like watching Formula One. I don't like watching cricket. Right. You know, it was just my opinion, but a couple of people took it the wrong way and <laughs> it went a bit viral, unfortunately, yeah. as social media can do. Yeah. But, um, and look, in fairness, you know, the women's game has been dealt a raw deal as well by the IRFU. Right. Um, you know, substandard, I suppose, coaching, substandard playing conditions, substandard changing facilities. Um and look, I think, you know, I look back at that that article now and, you know, was I right? Was I wrong? But I said, look, I, I write what I want to write. Um, but I shouldn't be there. You know, people shouldn't have taken it the wrong way. Yeah. People want to go play rugby. If they want to go rock climbing, if they want to do orienteering, that's up to them. And it shouldn't take a person like me to deter them from doing what they want to do. Um, I just don't. I just think there's too many mistakes in the women's game. That's all. That's 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 my opinion. So I just think, yeah. yeah. Um, and finally, Dave, I do this with all my guests. Um, I ask you a question in 60 seconds for your answer. All right. So, uh, favorite food? Uh, chicken. Favorite golf course? Uh, the old head of Kinsale. Favorite holiday? Working out the back of my garden. Um, favorite film? Shawshank. Go to karaoke song. I'm a brutal singer. Uh, it would be my way. Uh, biggest fear? Wondering what's coming around the corner on a daily basis. Proudest moment? Bringing my twins into the world. Not that I brought them in personally, but been there when they walk uh, leg day or chest day oh chest best book you ever read don't read a lot of books um, no um, I'll skip it will I um, no, nothing, nothing springs to mind yeah <laughs> uh, who would play you in a movie Al Pacino. Uh, how often do you do your dirty laundry? I don't. <laughs> I don't do dirty laundry. <laughs> right. And finally, Dave, uh, Westlife or Boys One? Um, Westlife, I suppose. Right. Uh, Cheers to that, Dave. Night.
And thanks for listening, and thanks again to former Ireland international Dave Corkery. Dave would have coached me at the well, um, and he uh, played a match or two with him. Hardy, hardy fella, but um, he was a bit before my time when I was watching the game of rugby. But by all accounts, he was supposed to be a serious back row player. And if you want a guy that made it for hard work and commitment, well, there's a prime example of that. And thanks again to Dave. It was great to great to get him on, and uh, hopefully I'll might meet him around Ardmore or meet him around the city or who knows. Um, until next time, where I'll have someone else from the world of sport, huh? Remember, you can get this on Spotify and all the other apps you might listen to this on. I'm Neville O'Donoghue. Thanks for listening, and I'm out of here.